You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, November 11th, 2021. I'm Kota Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over updates in campus news and discuss mountain lion sightings in the area. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU's athletics. And then I speak to Andrea Leyland from CSU Source about how one CSU alum made a pet dragon for a Make-A-Wish recipient. Then, Coda explains how Astroworld's safety protocols lacked plans to tolerate an audience surge. After that, we hear from Anton Schindler about the 2021 MLB season in his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. I give new information on COVID-19 statistics after that. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology, including how Facebook is changing how companies can target users in advertising. Let's move right into campus and local news. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to Campus News for Thursday. A new Center for Ethics and Human Rights is opening at Colorado State University. CSU has eight colleges within it, and according to Allison Sill of CSU Source News, the center was officially approved by the Faculty Council last May and Provost and Executive Vice President Mary Peterson in June. The center will be housed in the Institute for Learning and Teaching and the Office of the Provost. The center is bringing together 20 experts from across all colleges alongside the leadership team, and they will work towards tackling the world's most pressing issues. Visit source.colostate.edu for more info. Also reported by Allison Sill of CSU Source News, a team of four CSU students are finalists in an international competition designed to offer solutions to countries grappling with natural disasters and the supply chain issues that ensue. The team is now rated six in the Hankins School of Economics Humlog Challenge. This challenge has 37 teams from 21 universities from 16 different countries. Julia Chulwi Mansaka is on the team and she's from Zambia, which is why she's focusing her research on Mozambique. Its extremely long coastline makes it more vulnerable to natural disasters, and food insecurity has increased as a result of these natural disasters. The team also designed resiliency kits. To find out more about those, read Silt's article at source.colostate.edu. Piper Russell of the Collegian reported that Walter Scott Jr.'s final donation will expand the Scott Scholars Program for undergraduate students in the Walter Scott Jr. College of Engineering. By giving an additional $11.4 million over the next 10 years through his foundation, prior to his death on September 25th, the change could result in some students getting an extra $16,000 per year. The Scott Foundation will also provide $5 million over the next 10 years to fund, quote, high-impact research areas to be identified by the college. For more info on Walter Scott Jr. and his foundation, visit thecollegian.com. And now on to local news. The Coloradoan reported on Wednesday that Larimer County has matched its hospitalization record for COVID-19 patients. There were 122 COVID patients throughout Larimer County's hospitals last Friday, matching its record from December of 2020. On top of that, the intensive care units were being utilized at a rate of 125%. Starting late August, ICU utilization rates have hovered around 100% with usage rate hitting a record in October for 119% utilization. The Coloradoan reports that across Colorado, nearly 78% of hospitalized COVID patients are unvaccinated. As of Sunday, roughly every two out of three Larimer County residents are vaccinated. For more info on where to get your COVID-19 vaccine, visit Larimer.org. One of Fort Collins' mobile home parks was recently put up for sale, and residents of the park are trying to fight it. This year alone, up to three mobile home parks have been put up for sale in Larimer County, and the residents of Hickory Village and Fort Collins do not want to see their land lost. The site is to be sold for more than $20 million, but luckily residents have 90 days for their chance to buy the property themselves. Thistle, a regional housing nonprofit, called for a community meeting and more than 200 showed up and agreed to attempt to buy the park themselves. Members of the cooperative decided to make a $23.1 million offer, but unfortunately it wasn't high enough. After that, misinformation played a huge role in derailing the project. 
The phenomenon of residents owning their own communities is new to Colorado and has room for improvements. For more information, visit coloradoan.com. As reported on Tuesday, a mountain lion was spotted by Odea Elementary School. Another spotting occurred on Monday with security cam footage showing one near Princeton Road and College Avenue at around 10.30 p.m. Many reports over the last week have been about mountain lion sightings. If you spot a mountain lion, contact Fort Collins Police Services at 970-221-6540. North Fort Collins will experience some major road closures as the $24 million project at LeMay Avenue overpass of Vine Drive and the BNSF railway tracks begin construction. The intersection of LeMay and Lincoln Avenues are going to be closed throughout the day until Friday. The project will be Fort Collins' first train overpass and crews will be milling and repaving the intersection. Thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Make sure to tune in Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. And thanks for listening to KCSU. This is Ellie Shannon on 90.5 FM. This is DJ Hurricane thanking you for listening to KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotard. This is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football, the team lost the border war to Wyoming, 17-31. Their next match is Saturday against Air Force at Canvas Stadium. In women's soccer, the team competed in the Mountain West Championship Tournament, with their first match being against Utah State. They unfortunately lost that game 0-1. This ends the fall women's soccer season. In women's basketball, the team won against their season starter, Chardon State, with a score of 34-78 to begin their four-game homestand. McKenna Hoffenschild and Utope Asu led with 12 points each. McKenna Hoffenschild also led in rebounds. Their matches this week are against Colorado Christian and UNC. In men's basketball, the team started their season against Adams State and won 55 to 92 to begin their four-game homestand. Isaiah Stevenson's had 19 points, and David Roddy led with 15 rebounds and four blocks. Their next match is against Oral Roberts. In women's volleyball, the girls had back-to-back three-set sweeps against Nevada and San Jose State. In their game against San Jose State, Kennedy Stanford led with 16 kills and 32 total attacks. Sierra Pritchard led with 42 assists and four service aces. Sasha Colombo with three blocking assists, and Alexa Romeliotis with 13 digs. She earned her third Mountain West Defensive Player of the Week for this season. The team is leading the Mountain West and has now clinched a spot in the Mountain West Tournament. Their next matches are Tuesday night against Wyoming and Saturday against Fresno State at home. In cross-country, the teams competed in the Mountain West Conference event. The women placed third and the men placed fourth. They qualified for the NCAA Mountain Regional with a chance to compete in the NCAA championship in Florida. In women's swim and dive, the girls beat Idaho, University of Denver, U-Mary, and Colorado School of Mines. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get tickets for volleyball, basketball, football, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. Today I'm joined by Andrea Leyland to discuss her CSU source article going over how one CSU alum created a pet dragon for a Make-A-Wish recipient. Thanks for joining me today. It's good to be here. 
All right. So to start off with, can you tell me a little bit about Victoria Bohannon P, who was the engineer behind the pet dragon? So I know Victoria because she was a student here at CSU. So I am the communications manager for the electrical and computer engineering department. And she was one of the students in our program. She graduated in 2017. Um, she was a scholarship scholarship recipient while she was here. So I knew her as a student. And then I also uh, found out about this project recently um, that she's done as a successful alum in industry. All right. And then many Make-A-Wish recipients actually ask for living pets. So why did Belle choose for a robotic pet rather than a real pet? My understanding of that is um, with Belle's diagnosis, there were challenges to having a living pet in the house. Um, I don't know if that's because of fur or, you know, um, the exact reasons, but, but she, I guess her family made the decision that she couldn't actually have a live pet. So then she started to get creative. Um, and as someone who is very interested in fantasy books and that kind of thing, um, I, I think it's really fun how she, really, I guess, thought outside of the box with this wish. All right. And then, as you were saying, um, Belle, the recipient of the pet dragon, said she wanted some something similar to the silk-winged dragons in her favorite book series. Can yeah. you tell me a bit about the characteristics, if you know, that were important to making sure that she got her wish? Yeah. So, you know, the, the big thing with this dragon is that they really wanted it to be like a pet, you know, not just, not just a fancy toy. Um, and they wanted it to, to respond and to feel like a companion. And, and also thinking about the fact that, you know, a lot of this is going on during the pandemic. So I think there was even a greater sense of isolation for Belle. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, the engineering ingenuity really came into play. Um, I don't know if you remember Furbies, the toys from the 90s. So they worked with um, the maker of the Furby to kind of build on best practices um, for that toy and to make it responsive. Um, I think what's cool about it, too, is um, she, she just described the sensors that are all over its body and it's got um, pre-programmed um, responses, whether it's to, you know, certain kinds of foods to show displeasure or um, to coo, to make different noises. Um, the, the actual shell of the dragon is 3D printed. And so if you see some of the really close-up photos of it, it's, it's intricate. Um, and the wings were designed um, were modeled off of an actual butterfly. So they, they, they do have that look. Um, when I was speaking with Victoria about the project, she was talking about actually taking the dragon. Um, one of the things I didn't go into great detail on in the article was they did this really dramatic reveal of the dragon, which involved um, a, a virtual reality component and in the beginning, and it was at this castle down in Sedalia, Colorado. And then when the virtual reality piece was over, they revealed the dragon. Um, and Victoria talked about having to transport the dragon and how stressful that was <laughs> and how and how heavy it is. And um, because there's a lot of, you know, pieces and parts within within it to make it work. So. All right. And then what led Aero Engineering to be to really choosing to participate in this Make-A-Wish? Um, you know, I it, it's my understanding, I believe Make-A-Wish approached them. Um, and Arrow does a lot of work like this, where they're working with different suppliers um, and to, to do unique marketing type projects and, and certainly um, anything in the electronics world, um, they work with a lot of partners. So this was, I know that, um, I know that Victoria worked with people around the world on this project. Um, she even talked about trying to do another dragon, um, but because of the supply chain issues that they're having right now, that um, 
they haven't been able to make that happen. So it's it's good that she, that they were able to get it done when they did. And they actually got it done really quickly. They did it in 18 months. She said that the project management was, you know, keeping everyone to budget and on task was was very complex. All right. And then engineering, a lot of the times is understood as something very separate from like creativity and the interests of young people. So how do you think that this project really changed that understanding? I I mean, I think that this project, what's so cool about it is that it exemplifies engineering. Um, I think that electrical engineering is often misunderstood. Um, I, it, it really is all about creativity and being able to bring um, ideas to life. And so I think, and, and, and ideas that can really make an impact. And I think that's something that um, students don't always associate with electrical or computer engineering. So if there's one thing that I would say as a takeaway that this is a very innovative, creative discipline, and that, you know, I think Victoria would be the first to tell students that, you know, she's been able to do so much with her, her degree. And she's also, you know, it's a lucrative degree as well, but I I think the the best part is that it's fulfilling. All right. And then how do you think that this story represents an example of how engineering can really benefit the lives of people who are terminally ill? I think that engineering can offer hope. And that's one of the things that, um, that I really got from, you know, just reading about Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know, that's, that's their whole goal is to, to bring joy and hope to lives. And I, and I really think engineering can make so many things possible through the, the creativity and passion of others. All right. And then what way does this story exemplify how CSU trains its students to handle unique tasks? Um, I would say that, um, the reason why this is a great example is because Victoria has that technical knowledge that that is, you know, it's it's fundamental. Like her background in electrical and computer engineering um, made this project um, perfect for her in that she understood the technical piece and she she could um, understand like the coding involved, but also the hardware involved. But she also had um, the, what we often call, um, professional skills. So the skills that, um, that employers are looking for, like the communication, uh, project management, leadership skills. I mean, I think those skills combined with the strong technical background really allowed her to shine in this project. Um, you know, I, I, you know, she really emphasized when I spoke with her that, you know, just the, the project management of this particular project was um, so complex. And then being able to, to understand all the pieces and parts of what went into the engineering um, made, it, made it doable in 18 months because she had all of those skills. All right. And then on a personal note, can you tell me a bit about what it was like to write this story? Well, you know, I, it, it was, it was a meaningful story for me for a couple of reasons. One, I were, I remember Victoria as a student and, and I'm not giving anything away to say this because she has shared this in talks that she's given to our students. She struggled a little bit. I mean, she, um, it's not an easy major, but she was the first one to say like, you know, there's support for you. And if you ask for help, it's so worth it. And so for me, it was really cool to see someone who it took her six years to graduate, but she she's doing so well in industry and um, she really had the fortitude. And I think that's a big piece of this major um, on a personal level. So so. Personally, that was exciting for me to see her her thriving in industry. Um, Also, I have a niece who um, had cancer as a child and she um, she was also, you know, the support that she received from Make-A-Wish. So so that was a personal piece for me as well. So. All right. And then do you have anything you'd like to add about this story? I, you know, I think I've, I've emphasized that, you know, the engineering is, I think can be a very rewarding path for students who, who are creative and who, I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many 
alums and students I've talked with who just have a, a an innate curiosity about how things work. And, um, you know, I know Victoria was talking about how even when she was little, she used to take apart Barbies um, and or computers or different things and put them back together. And and I think there's I think there are a lot of students out there who are like that, who maybe don't see this discipline as a path, but I think it really can be um, offer a lot of opportunity for students. All right. Thank you again for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Again, that was Andrea Leyland from CSU Source. To read her original article, you can visit source.colostate.edu. KCSU comes from Nosh Noko, a locally owned food delivery service from local restaurants that want to provide food delivery to the Noko community. Learn more about the Noko Nosh app and how to order food at nokonosh.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and this is National News for Thursday. As a criminal investigation into the cause of the Astroworld Festival deaths, authorities found the festival lacked necessary protocols to be used in the case of a crowd surge. According to Juan A. Lozano and Robert Bumstead at the Associated Press, eight people died as a result of the crowd surge, and hundreds were injured, including a nine-year-old boy who's reportedly in a coma. The Houston Fire Department's union leader said that firefighters did not have any presence at the sold-out music festival and weren't given any means to communicate with organizers or security, such as radios. At least 13 of the hundreds injured were hospitalized, and experts say that crowd surge deaths often occur when people pack too tightly into a space, restricting others' ability to breathe by pushing into them. The president of the Houston Professional Firefighters Association, Marty Langton, said that they previously asked for radios, but organizers instead gave them cell phone numbers to call in emergencies, which the department cannot use. NASA is postponing its next moon mission until at least 2025. According to Bill Chappelle at National Public Radio, this mission was expected to put the first person of color as well as the first woman on the moon's surface. It would be NASA's first lunar human mission in over half a century. NASA is planning a significant number of new lunar missions in coming years, but the agency said Tuesday that Space Force deadlines and contractual issues required the Artemis missions to be postponed. NASA previously responded to the Trump administration goals to get people on the moon by 2024 by saying they were unrealistic, considering the level of preparations needed. NPR says that the first launch of an Artemis program ship will happen in 2022, with a run of its new Orion capsule and launch. The following two stories discuss gun violence and civilian vigilantism. The first story discusses the death of a black man, Ahmed Arbery, and the second goes over the Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial. Each of these stories are approximately a minute long, with the Kyle Rittenhouse story being a slight bit longer. KCSU encourages informed listening, especially for those driving or otherwise operating a vehicle while listening. If these topics might cause you severe distress, turn down your radio for the next minute or two. To listen later, you can tune in to kcsufm.com news or go on Spotify by searching KCSU News to listen to stories at your own pace. A detective testified in trial that Gregory McMichael, one of three white men charged with killing Ahmed Arbery, said he never saw Arbery commit a crime. According to Devin M. Sayers and Pamela Kirkland at CNN, the Glynn County Police Department detective Parker Marcy served as the sixth witness in the prosecution trial. While the three men's defense team says the group was attempting to conduct a citizen's arrest, the testimony could render that argument invalid. 
McMichael said of the event that he'd worn Arbery prior to, the sh- prior to shooting him and said that the group was concerned about a rise in crime in the neighborhood. Glynn County Police Officer Jeff Brandeberry said that McMichael never described what he did as an arrest or detainment when he was interviewed at the scene and never said Arbery was trespassing, as he claims. Brandeberry also said that McMichael seemed excited upon arrival into the station. When Prosecutor Linda Dinokowski asked the officer whether or not McMichael ever claimed to be making a citizen's arrest, Brandeberry denied that he'd ever said anything regarding it. Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed multiple men at a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, said that the first man he shot threatened to kill him. According to a writer's team at the Associated Press, the protest occurred after the shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man injured at the hands of a Kenosha police officer. Rittenhouse began crying at the stand and said he, quote, didn't want to shoot Joseph Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse also claimed that Rosenbaum chased him and previously threatened to kill him. The prosecutor addressed this claim by saying, quote, you understand that when you point your AR-15 at someone, it may make them feel like you're going to kill them, correct? End quote. Rittenhouse likely faces life in prison for the murder of two men and the injury of another. The defense asked for a mistrial, which would prevent Rittenhouse from being retried. Rittenhouse said that he was running away from Rosenbaum and only shot him as a last resort, and that he attended the protest to protect private property, including business owners, like a car dealership. The prosecutor Thomas Binger asked Rittenhouse if he thought it was appropriate to bring a deadly weapon to protect the property. Rittenhouse faces charges for intentional homicide. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Kuda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Now for an episode of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 31 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Well, the 2021 MLB season is officially over, and I am proud to announce that the Atlanta Braves are the 2021 MLB World Champions. After the Astros eventually beat the Red Sox in Game 6 to win the American League Championship, they went on to face the National League champion Atlanta Braves, who also won out the series against the Dodgers four games to two. The Best of Seven World Series started October 26th, with Game 1 giving us a little taste of the incredible offense that we would see all throughout the series. The Braves started hot, scoring two runs in the first, a run in the second, and two more in the third, all before A.J. Minter, the Braves pitcher, would give up a single run. Solaire had his first home run of the series in the top of the first inning off Framber Valdez, followed by Adam Duvall's first home run, which scored two. The Braves won Game 1 in Houston, 6-2. Game 2 flipped the script entirely, as the Astros would have a four-run second inning that quickly quieted Max Freed and excited the Astros faithful. Freed would finish his night giving up six runs on seven hits, as the Astros tied the series with their 7-2 victory. Game 3 would be the first in Atlanta, in what was one of the better pitch games of the series. The final for the 3-hour and 24-minute game was 2 to nothing in favor of the Braves and saw Ian Anderson jump to 2 and 0. Actually, there was a no-hitter going into the 8th inning as the first hit would come off of Tyler Matzik as the ball landed just short of the left fielder and NLCS MVP Eddie Rosario. The Astros would only have one more hit in the game off closer Will Smith, but they were never able to crack the Atlanta pitching staff. Game 4 saw a pitching matchup between the left-handed rookie Dylan Lee for Atlanta and Zach Granke, one of the all-time great October pitchers. Lee would give up the first run of the game after recording one out in the first inning before handing the ball off to Kyle Wright, who would pitch four and two-thirds, giving up just one more run in the fourth. Granke, on the other hand, would keep the Braves off the board until he and Ryan Stanek were replaced by Brooks Raley, who would give up a double to Eddie Rosario. Austin Riley would then hit an RBI single that would score Rosario, finally putting the Braves on the board. A two-run seventh inning, thanks to -to back-to-back home runs from Dansby Swanson and Jorge Soler, would put the Braves up ahead, and they never looked back. 
They ended up taking game four, just like that. And on the brink of elimination, the pitching game for both teams kind of went a little bit south. The game would start with a grand slam off the bat of Adam Duvall in the bottom of the first inning. Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? The Astros would then answer with two runs in the second and two runs in the third. The Braves would score their fifth and final run in the third with a home run off the bat of the longtime Brave, Freddie Freeman. And after a clean fourth inning, the Astros would just pile it on even more. Three runs would be scored in the fifth inning, thanks to a Martin Maldonado bases-loaded walk and an RBI single that would score two, coming from the pinch hitter Marwin Gonzalez. Houston would score once more in the seventh and again in the eighth to win game five, nine to five. Game six would go back to Houston and would be Max Freed's curtain call. Freed would pitch six scoreless innings, giving up only four hits while striking out six before handing it off to Tyler Matzik, who similarly gave up one hit, striking out four. Meanwhile, the Braves would score three runs in the third off of a three-run shot from Jorge Soler, and another three runs in the fifth thanks to a two-run home run from Dansby Swanson and an RBI double off the bat of Freddie Freeman. Freddie wasn't quite done either as he would score the final run of the game as he took Ryan Stanek deep to left center field with two outs in the seventh. Then, it was up to the rock-solid Will Smith who, without much trouble at all, would finish off the Astros in the ninth, securing the victory and the World Series championship. And it was the best way to end the championship as well, as it was a ground ball hit to Dansby Swanson as he picked it up and threw it over to the all-time Atlanta great Freddie Freeman. This is the first World Series championship since 1995 for the Braves. The craziest part about all of this, however, was the fact that going into the postseason, the Braves finished with an 88-73 and record when no other teams in the playoffs had less than 93 wins. So, talk about an underdog story. This year was a truly unprecedented one, without a doubt. As I mentioned in my recap of the 2021 season just a few episodes ago, there have been a lot of crazy things that have made this season so special. And this kind of realization got me thinking about other seasons that ended with kind of a ridiculous storyline, including the 2000 MLB season. Now, if you're a big fan of hits and home runs, then Well, this was the season for you. Only two seasons off of the incredible Long Gone Summer, which we'll talk about next week, came one of the craziest home run frenzies baseball had ever seen. You see, up until this point, uh, then record 5,693 home runs were hit during the regular season. This record would be eventually broken, but it wouldn't be until 6,105 home runs were slugged in 2017. So it took 17 seasons for this record to be broken. The current record, if you were wondering, is 6,776 home runs that the 30 teams hit in 2019. But even so. In 2000, however, there were 10 teams that hit 200 or more home runs, The Astros, Blue Jays, Athletics, Angels, Cardinals, Giants, Indians, White Sox, Dodgers, Yankees, and the Reds. 16 teams finished over 500, and all 30 teams had a .401 win percentage or better. The AL East had three teams over 500, with the Yankees winning the division with an 87-74 record. The Red Sox and Blue Jays finished two and a half and four and a half games behind them, respectively. But I think the most wild division was definitely the NL West, which had four of its five teams finish above 500. 
as the Giants won the division with a 97-65 and record, which, by the way, was the best record in the league. The Dodgers would finish in second 11 games back with an 86-76 and record, which is almost unheard of, followed by the Diamondbacks, who were 12 games out, and the 82-80 and Rockies, who finished 15 games out of the division. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that just about every team, bar maybe the Cubs and Phillies, were pretty competitive. But, I mean, even then, no teams lost 100 games. And I guess won 100 games, which nowadays just seems kind of guaranteed. Like, if there's a team that doesn't either win 100 games or lose 100 games, that's a very strange season. And in 2000, the bats were so electric, in fact, that there were no no no-hitters pitched. None. It was the first time since 1989 that that had happened, and only the fifth time since 1949. But it's not like the MLB was lacking in pitchers in 2000. Actually, it was quite the opposite. Tom Glavin, the 17-year Atlanta Brave, went 21-9 with a 3.40 ERA. Tim Hudson, the second-year Georgia product, went 20-6 with a 4.14 ERA. All the while, David Wells, Andy Pettit, Chanho Park, and three Hall of Famers, Pedro Martinez, Greg Maddox, and Randy Johnson, were all pitching, arguably in their prime at this time. But I think you got a little bit of a glimpse at the problem that these pitchers were facing at the time. I mean, to be fair, Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson had the best ERAs at a 174 and 264, respectively. But pretty much all of the other pitchers, at least the ones that I listed above, had either a 3.0 ERA to almost a 5.0 ERA. I mean, they just could not get the numbers of these hitters down. For example, Sammy Sosa had 50 home runs on 193 hits and a 320 batting average. Barry Bonds had 49 home runs and a 306 batting average. Jeff Bagwell and Troy Glaus both had 47 home runs. I mean, these guys just couldn't stop hitting. The Rockies' own Todd Helton led the league with a 372 batting average, as well as 216 hits, 59 doubles, and 147 RBIs. And not to mention his first of many all-star appearances and eventual silver sluggers that he would receive at the end of the season. The closest to Todd was the Red Sox' Nomar Garcia-Para, who also had a 372 batting average, but with 19 fewer hits and 21 home runs compared to Todd's 42. And when you have this many guys that are this close to a 400 batting average, I mean, you're not going to have a very fun season as a pitcher. (laughs) Let's be honest. Like, let me put it this way. There have only been 20 players in the entire history of the MLB that have recorded at least a 400 batting average in a single MLB season. The most recent to do it was Ted Williams in 1941. Besides Todd Helton and Nomar Garcia-Para, Hall of Famer Larry Walker was the most recent player that was the closest to hit 400 when he hit 379 in 1999. I think one of the most exciting parts of the season, other than, of course, the millions of home runs hit and all of the hits and everything like that, was the playoffs and the outcome of the playoffs. You see, the Chicago White Sox faced off against the Seattle Mariners as the Oakland Athletics played the New York Yankees in the ALDS. The San Francisco Giants played the New York Mets, and the St. Louis Cardinals played the Atlanta Braves for the NLDS. The Mariners, Yankees, Mets, and Cardinals all moved on to play in the ALCS and the NLCS, respectively, where the Yankees beat the Mariners four games to two 
as the Mets beat the Cardinals four games to one. Now, this meant that for the first and only time, the New York Yankees and the New York Mets were meeting in the World Series. Now, as all of the fans in the Bronx battled all of the fans in Queens, the Yankees would take Game 1 and Game 2, with Game 1 ending in a walk-off single and a 4-3 victory in the 12th inning, as Game 2 ended in a 6-5 victory. So, just from Game 1 and 2, you can tell that both of these teams were pitching really well, and both of these teams were hitting even better. Every game of this series was only decided by one or two runs. Game three would go the way of the Mets, thanks to a Robin Ventura home run and a handful of doubles, but eventually game four and game five would go to the Yankees. Yankees ace Mike Stanton would have two wins in the series, and Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera would pick up the save in games five and six. Derek Jeter was unanimously named the World Series MVP as he slugged two home runs, two doubles, a triple, and four singles on his way to collecting a 409 batting average. This, by the way, was a full year before Jeter won his nickname, Mr. November. Interesting. Now, 2000 was a really crazy year for baseball, as you can tell, but I think it's fair to say that it's more uncommon for there to not be a crazy year in baseball. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the single-season home run record has already been broken twice, even though it took 17 seasons to break it the first time, but you know what I mean. And looking back on the 2021 season, so many wonderful and crazy storylines have happened that it just fills me with excitement for the 2022 season, and it kind of refreshes me to see that baseball's kind of on a good path right now. I mean, who knows what kind of things will happen? Who knows what incredible offensive records or defensive records we'll see completely shattered in front of our very own eyes? I mean, maybe we'll see the record for most no-hitters, or see all 30 teams break 7,000 home runs in a season. I mean, all I really know is that trying to predict it in possibly a future episode of Painting the Corners will be very interesting. So, in the next episode, we're going to talk about this famed long-gone summer between Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and a few other sluggers at this time. And we'll take a deep dive into some of the controversy that arose from this long-gone summer that changed the game of baseball as we know it. Thank you for listening. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. To make sure news content like the Rocky Mountain Review is funded through the years, be sure to donate by visiting kcsufm.com donate or by calling us at 970-491-KCSU. Colorado State University reports that on-campus students and staff had a vaccination rate of 90%, with around 7 to 8% submitting exemptions to the university. CSU reports over 4,100 cases among students, staff, and faculty. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces, if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving to outdoors. 
monitor your health, and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The county reports nearly 43,000 cumulative cases of COVID-19 and over 340 deaths among residents. Larimer County's seven-day case rate is nearly 400 cases per 100,000 inhabitants, and 119 COVID-19 patients currently receive treatment in area hospitals today, with hospitals reporting that intensive care units are at 125% capacity as of Wednesday. The state of Colorado reports nearly 775,000 cases of COVID-19, along with over 8,800 deaths. Over 8 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and over 3.5 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated. Nationally, the United States reports over 46.6 million COVID-19 cases, along with over 755,000 deaths. 79% of people ages 12 and older are at least partially vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19, with high community transmission rates nationwide, and some regional exceptions. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Kuda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Remember to donate to KCSU's DJathon fundraiser. You can donate by visiting kcsufm.com donate. And if you donate $90.50 annually, you can join Club 905, an exclusive program offered by KCSU Fort Collins. Visit kcsufm.com donate. I'm Kota Babcock, and now for tech news for November 11th. Uber is under fire for discriminating against people with disabilities, particularly wheelchair users. According to Andrew J. Hawkins at The Verge, a Department of Justice lawsuit against Uber says that wheelchair users are being charged wait time fees while entering vehicles. The DOJ says that those charged extra fees for wheelchair boarding may be entitled to compensation. Private transportation companies charging additional fees is a form of discrimination due to it penalizing disabled people for simple accommodations, which is prohibited under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Wait time fees started being charged in 2016 by the company, and they charge customers who take more than two minutes to get to their Uber pickup location and into the car after their driver arrives. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark said, quote, People with disabilities deserve equal access to all areas of community life, including the private transportation services provided by companies like Uber, end quote. Clark also added that the department aims to use this lawsuit to show that companies like Uber cannot penalize customers based on the support or accommodations required for their disability. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, is no longer giving the option for advertisers to target users based on race, political affiliation, religion, or other sensitive identities, with this policy going into place on January 10th. According to Shannon Bond at National Public Radio, Meta announced the decision to reduce discrimination or other harm by advertisers against its user base by using this as its first step. In one example, the targeting has been used in real estate to avoid showing house listings to people of certain races, ethnicities, or religions. While Facebook corrected its advertising tools in response to a lawsuit related to this in 2019, this type of targeting has continued to have a negative impact on some users. Meta makes a total of $86 billion in annual advertising revenue, meaning this decision could have an impact on the company's finances. Advertisements on the platform previously targeted users for exclusion based on their identities and created ads that used anti-Semitic phrasing, according to NPR. Meta said in their announcement that this will impact advocacy organizations as well, meaning that religious organizations celebrating holidays like Rosh Hashanah or Eid will no longer be able to target Jewish or Muslim people for their advertisements, and health organizations like diabetes or HIV-related nonprofits won't be able to target users based on their health status. British Prince Harry says he was in email communications with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey about the risk of an insurrection prior to the January 6 Capitol attacks. According to Danica Kirka at the Associated Press, the prince repeatedly commented on how social media companies failed to acknowledge the risk of misinformation on their platform, as well as the planning of the terrorist incident. Prince Harry says he warned Dorsey and Twitter about the concerns he had with a coup was being formed using the platform. Prince Harry said at a tech forum, quote, Jack and I were emailing each other prior to January 6th, where I warned him that this platform was allowing a coup to be staged, end quote. 
Prince Harry also attacked YouTube for allowing COVID-19 misinformation to spread on the platform, including through recommendations on other videos. As a result of his concerns over misinformation, Prince Harry joined the Aspen Institute to look further into misinformation being spread in the media, saying that he believes, quote, misinformation is a global humanitarian crisis, end quote. The prince also claims that he has not heard from Dorsey since January 5th. That's all for Tech News. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And now for the weather. Today was cool and mostly sunny with a high of 54 and a low of 32, with heavy winds reaching 17 miles per hour. Friday, winds will slow down to 10 miles per hour with a high of 55 and a low of 36. And moving into the weekend, Saturday will be partly cloudy with a high of 64 and a low of 37, and Sunday will be a bit cooler with partly cloudy skies with a high of 59 and a low of 38. Monday, we'll see temperatures warm up to a high of 70 with a low of 41, partly cloudy skies, and pretty low wind speeds. Tuesday will be pretty similar with a high of 67 and a low of 34. And for Wednesday, you'll have to check back in with us on Tuesday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Eric, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.